January 1st, 1990, President Václav Havel of Czechoslovakia addressed his nation. It had been a few weeks since his country peaceably ousted the communist totalitarian government that had held power for 40 years. Only two days before, Havel had been elected president by a parliament still dominated by communists. This is what he said, quote, we live in a contaminated moral environment. We learned not to believe in anything, to ignore each other, to care only for ourselves. Concepts such as love, friendship, compassion, humility, and forgiveness lost their depth and dimensions. And for many of us, they came to represent only psychological peculiarities or to resemble long-lost greetings from ancient times. When I talk about contaminated moral atmosphere, I am talking about all of us. Why do I say this? It would be quite unreasonable to understand the sad legacy of the last 40 years as something alien, something bequeathed to us by some distant relative. On the contrary, we must accept this legacy as a sin we committed against ourselves. Havel is also known to have said these words. The tragedy of modern man is not that he knows less and less about the meaning of his own life, but that it bothers him less and less. I think James was a lot like this guy. As the letter unfolds, as I said last time, it's pretty clear that James is trying to minister truth to people, people whose difficulties had caused them to drift spiritually. All they had problems, as we've seen, with unbridled speech and wrong attitudes and internal strife and doubt and carnality and shallow faith. They were tainted with prejudicial tensions which divided their community rich from poor. They were Christians living in the world, but to their shame, they were also acting as if they were of it. And this letter hits the problem on the head. Head on. True faith, James says, is not conformed to the world. That's what we saw last time. Operates in it, for sure, but it's not supposed to be of it. And as we saw last time, we are depraved, deprived, and deplorable people when we live like the world. Yet, as those who belong to Christ, we are also a desirable people. People whom God the Father loves with an unconditional love. And who pours out his grace to those who seek it and will receive it. That's the end of the matter. That's the pinnacle of the matter. And that's what James refers to as he rounds out this section here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, which we're going to finish up today. But let me read the six verses to gain the context back. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. 
You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As James has already pointed out, selfish ambition and bitter envy and the resulting chaos and divisiveness, this is not stuff that's of God. Rather, it mimics the world, the cosmos, the world system around us, which is under the power of the evil one. And all of the fussing and fighting that occurs among believers have reasons and results attached to them, and they require a remedy, which also, when accomplished, brings forth a reward. We're going to see that next time. But causes, consequences, and cures, that's what chapter 4 was dealing with, is dealing with. And last time, we looked at some of the causes for fighting among believers. So I'm going to highlight those three again before I move into the end. Number one was we saw the depravity of our pleasures was one of the causes. Verses one and two again, James says, the source of your quarrels and conflicts is your pleasures that waged war in your members. The picture here is a Christian community fraught with internal problems. Verse one says they're happening among you. And this is where James gets really personal, as we saw. The issues in his day truly speak to the issues of our own. It's our personal pleasures that cause conflict. It's not Satan. It's not bad teaching. It's not bad leadership practices. It's not disruptive people who are agreeing with sound doctrine primarily. James identifies the culprit as our own lusts and pleasures. And those wage war in our members. It's sheer hedonistic worldliness, says James. Plain and simple. Self-indulgent, sinful pleasures. And left unchecked, they will choke the life out of you and they will choke the life out of the church. And we saw that these are increasingly becoming part of the fabric of our own times, even in our churches. They wage war, James says, in our members, both collectively as a church, but more importantly, individually in our bodies and in our souls. As I mentioned, the conflicts among us are the result of the conflicts within us. We are the ones to blame for our petty arguments and strife. The source is selfish desire, James says. The antidote, as we saw last time, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision to the, for the flesh in regards to its what? Lusts, pleasures, desires. And when we fail to take that route, the outcome is unconscionable. Verse 2, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And I suggested to you then that James was likely referring to the, when he used the term commit murder or kill in a spiritual sense, meaning you're selfishly mad enough to kill. Also, it's a reference to a hypothetical eventuality which we saw rather than a present reality. In other words, if your covetous lust for pleasure were to run its course to the very end, unrestrained murder would be the result. A heart full of lust and hate is capable of murder. And none of us is immune to the sad results of the power of unrestrained 
compassion to have what we cannot obtain. And the classic example of that, as we saw, was David and Bathsheba, right? Classic example. And the potential to do the same is resident within us, but for God's grace. The same source of conflict to which James refers continues to plague the church of Jesus Christ today, the depravity of our pleasures. But James identifies this second area, which I named as the poverty of our prayers. Again, the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, you don't have because you don't ask. And you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. Now, first, James is saying, you know, you don't have because you're not praying about it. You're not asking about it. Second, if you do ask, you're not asking correctly. The prayer life of James's church and the people there was impoverished in both of those ways, two ways. It was either non-existent or pleasure motivated. What would the Holy Spirit say about you and me? Heaven forbid, may it never be, we need to be careful that we are a church characterized by biblical prayer. Because it's only the prayers that conform to God's revealed pattern that get answered. And we will receive what we ask for when we ask. And I outlined this in detail last time, but I'll just give you the, type, the, the basic topics. Number one, when we ask as God's legitimate children in faith, in Christ's name, meaning if Jesus himself were praying them, according to God's will to further God's kingdom and with the help of God's spirit. That's how the Bible says, basically, that we need to be praying. Psalm 37, Psalm 37, in the first five verses say, Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. That, my friends, is what it means to pray with right motives. Want a way out of an impoverished prayer life? Make sure that what you ask for is first and foremost God-pleasing, not primarily pleasure-motivated. And as I said before, James isn't messing around here. He's on a mission. The fact that this church was so divided in its loyalties brings out his passion as a pastor, and I believe it's reminiscent of his brother Jesus' consuming zeal when he cleansed the temple of the money changers and the sellers. Worldliness had entered the house of God, and it needed cleansing. James saw the church of his day going down the same path, and he couldn't keep silent. True faith is not conformed to the world, James says. When a church is becoming conformed to the world, it is revealed through not only the depravity of our pleasures and the poverty of our prayers, but thirdly, James says, it's revealed through the deplorability of our allegiances in verse four. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Here is where James drops the bomb and where we pick up from the last time. This is James's version 
of his brother Jesus's scourge-wielding, table-turning, temple-cleansing disgust. In my opinion. Up until now, James called his readers my brethren six times up until chapter four. Now what does he call them? You what? Adulteresses. Pretty harsh. He's, he's, he's resorted to name calling. But not without substance. You adulteresses. One commentator says that this marks the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repentance that we find in the New Testament. It's the heart of James's letter right here. This is strong, strong language. James is charging them with cheating on God. Their allegiance was gravitating to the world and away from God. And by the way, an unsaved person is not a spiritual adulterer. I said that last time, but I'm reminding you again that only someone who is in a covenant relationship and who is being unfaithful can be called an adulterer. And in the original language, James uses the feminine form of the word. And many of your translations may use the terms adulterous people. But in the actual Greek, the word is adulteresses. It's feminine. And there's a reason for that. I believe James is picking up the Old Testament picture of Israel's covenant relationship to Yahweh as bound by marriage. Isaiah chapter 54 Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 and 6 say this, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. God is depicted here as the husband and Israel oftentimes is charged in the Old Testament with being an unfaithful wife, an adulteress. Jeremiah chapter three, verse 20, for example, says, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. So you get the picture? The ESV actually uses the term treacherous wife. You've been a treacherous wife. Now, bear with me because this is scripture. But in some of the most graphic sexual language in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel describes the extent of Israel's treacherous spiritual adultery by which even Israel's enemies were disgusted and because of which brought on the wrath and judgment of God. Ezekiel chapter 16, if you want to follow along, in verse 23, Ezekiel 16. Then it came about after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, that you built yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable. And you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. 
You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations, and I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who are shamed of your lewd conduct. Even Israel's enemies were ashamed of their conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. How languishing, God says, is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. Verse 38 Thus I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged. And I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And there's much more in that chapter of Ezekiel. But let me tell you something, folks. When James says, you adulteresses, they had a picture in their mind. They were Jews. They knew what he was talking about. And this is heavy-duty stuff. And it's convicting to the core to the contemporary church. This imagery comes to a climax in the book of Hosea as Israel is again charged with unrepentant spiritual adultery through worldly idolatry. Just as in our day, material prosperity and spiritual bankruptcy characterize the times of Hosea. Yet even in the midst of Israel's spiritual infidelity, that book, that Hosea, shows that God remains faithful, relentlessly pursuing those whom he loves. Isn't that grace? Grace. There's a ray of hope here in all of this. Even so, God will not force himself upon a nation or upon a people or any person who is unwilling to admit their unfaithful allegiances to the world. Humility and repentance on the part of those who have turned their back on God and shaken their fists at his love is required before reconciliation can actually take place. But he will make every effort possible to reach people. God will do that. This is exactly why God sent his son into the world. God so loved the world Same word, the cosmos. Only it doesn't mean the world system here. He's not talking about the evil, God-hating system by which it operates. He's talking about the people themselves whom he created and desires to have a relationship with. God so loved that world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then John continues, he says, For God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And yet, his people still stray. They still flirt with the world. I do, you do, his church does. 
Jesus unmistakably labeled those in his day when he walked the earth who rejected him and who would rather snuggle up to the world as a, what did Jesus call them? A wicked and adulterous generation. And the upshot of it all is that a heart beating to the rhythm of the world leads to anger at opposition to and enmity with God. Enemies, James says, enemies. Verse four in the J.B. Phillips version says this, you are like unfaithful wives flirting with the glamour of this world and never realizing that to be the world's lover means becoming an enemy of God. Anyone who deliberately chooses to love the world is thereby making himself God's enemy. The message says it like this. You're cheating on God if all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get. You end up enemies of God in his way. Now, I think James is actually reaching out to people here. He's not just bringing the hammer down. He's reaching out to his people who may not truly understand That to choose friendship with the world is actually aligning yourself against God. That's what he's saying. And he's trying to wake them up. And we can fall into that trap, can't we? All of us can. It's interesting that the tenor of the word that James uses here for friendship is a bit different than the casual idea of friendship that we think of when you hear the word friendship. What do you think of? It's like, yeah, you know, you're my friend. Well, the Hellenistic or the Greek view was much more intimate than that. It speaks of an intimacy which involved a unity which was both physical and spiritual. In fact, it's related to the word for brotherly love. Phileo or Philadelphia. It's a word that comes from that word. And it's often translated as showing kind affection for and can even be translated as the word kiss, to kiss. Now, it's not difficult to grasp why James says that whoever is to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, is it, when you view that term that way? You're kissing up to the world. What's that mean with your relationship with God? Church in bed with the world is spiritually cheating on God and makes itself odious to him. And the word I use, because it's a buzzword, is deplorable. It's deplorable. And you may be asking, is that really happening? Now, I think it's happening. I think it's happening. Not all, not for everybody, not for every church, not all the way across the board. But you tell me, when, we, when, when the church of Jesus Christ begins to cozy up to a political machine, it begins to put their faith and their trust in a government rather than in God, that's what James is talking about. So we can all say amen to that. But at the risk of receiving all kinds of nasty email, (laughs) I want to give you an example that I ran across a while back when I was doing my series on what would Jesus say to the church today, but I never used it. 
And I will, I'm going to warn you right now that the original article was written by no friend of Christianity because it's irreverent. The original article was irreverent. It was crass and unfair to be sure. However, it does raise a few hard questions about the way we do church in contemporary America. So now that I got you primed for that, you just can't wait to hear it, right? Well, the title of the article itself is enough to cause controversy. Here it is. It run me out of town today. Grace, Lord. Going to a gay bar is a lot like going to a contemporary church worship service. That's the title. Mind you, some words have been modified to protect the innocent. <laughs> going to a gay bar is a lot like going to a contemporary church worship service. Think about it. In both places, you have flashing neon-colored lights, fog, stage, smoke, extremely loud music, people jumping up and down. At a gay bar, you might sing Cher or Madonna or Katy Perry, you know, the holy trinity of classic gay hymn singers. Their music is pretty mediocre in and of itself, but you're drunk, so you don't care. At a contemporary worship service, you might sing Chris Tomlin or Matt Redman or Hillsong, you know, the holy trinity of classic worship song singers. Their music is pretty mediocre in and of itself, but you're high on the Holy Spirit, so you don't care except after the 90,000th time singing the same generic lyric on repeat, and then the Holy Spirit leaves you. At a gay bar, he says, there's usually a guy with a tattoo sleeve on one of his arms. You know, so you know that he's dangerous. At a contemporary worship service, there's usually a pastor with a tattoo sleeve on one of his arms. You know, so you know that he's cool and that he's safe to talk to. Not like the scary pastors of the past who wore suits. <laughs> this guy is from your generation. So stylish, right? So relevant and trendy and approachable. The tattoos give him street cred. They make you think, man, that guy must have a story. But then really... They're all tattoos of Bible verses. The contemporary American church, he concludes, all glamour, none of the substance, all the showiness, none of the show. Now, I need to say a few things. First of all, the tattoo thing. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, everybody that has tattoos on there, that's not what I'm talking about here. What is the guy saying? Who's copying who? What's the motive for it, really? Only God can judge the motive. Motive may be good. Motive may not be good. If it's only to be cool, it's not so good. 
And I also want to go on record by saying that these charges that this guy makes are on the one hand inflammatory and grossly unfair to the church at large. However, in all humility, in all humility, is there any kernel of truth here that he's saying? What would Jesus have to say? Romans chapter 8, in verse 5, says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the spirit, in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. While neither the people of James' day nor ours are overtly disclaiming God necessarily and consciously deciding to follow the world, instead there is a clear tendency in us to imitate the world, isn't there? And we do it by the same means that they did in Jesus' day. We do it by discrimination. We do it by speaking against one another. We do it by showing bitter envy and selfish ambition and by pursuing our own destructive pleasures. And as commentator Douglas Moo asserts, God tolerates no rival. When believers behave in a worldly manner, they demonstrate that at that point, their allegiance is to the world and not to God. If verse 4 in James here is anything, I believe it's the pinnacle of the church's need of repentance for the depravity of its pleasures, the poverty of its prayers, and the deplorability of its allegiances. But this passage also offers up up a high point of something else, and that is the gravity of God's grace. Look at verses 5 and 6. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, and he gives a greater grace? A greater grace. This, This church of James' day may have been depraved and deprived and deplorable in their actions, their prayers and their allegiances, but they were also something else as God's redeemed children. They were desired by God. They were desired by him. And though we may be unfaithful to God, we will, he will always be faithful to us. Always. In his commitment, he will always uphold it. He will always be faithful even when we're not. He is jealous for you. You are one of his own if you're in Christ. If his spirit dwells in you, as we just saw in, in Romans chapter 8, and will not, he will not let you go. He won't. Just so you know, this verse is considered by most scholars, this verse 5 here, to be the, one of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament to translate. And it is indeed the most difficult to translate in this letter. If you were to compare a half a dozen translations, and you probably already have figured this out, 
because I'm reading from the New American Standard. You may have a different one. You would find that this half dozen translations would all read differently. Now, some of the problems in this verse include jealously desires can be either positive or negative. Viewed that way. The spirit can refer to our human spirit or the Holy Spirit, depending on how you translate it. The form of the word spirit can also be translated as the object or the subject of the phrase that it's used in. There is, and also, to top it all off, there is no specific Old Testament scripture that says exactly what this verse says. So what does it mean when James says, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? And then he quotes this. And there's no scripture we can point to that says that. See, it's just fraught with all kinds of translation problems. Now, to suffice it to say that it is far, far above most of our pay grades, so to speak, mine included to skillfully translate this verse on our own. We need to stand on other people's shoulders, don't we? We must trust the Holy Spirit to guide us into all the truth, which he said he, Jesus said he would, through those who have those grammatical skills and responsibly arrive at a decision. And for me, the options really boiled down to two, for your information. Number one, James is referring to God's jealousy for his people. Or number two, James is referring to the human tendency that we have to be envious. My view after all the study and the context, is that the context points forcefully toward the view that the Holy Spirit God has placed within us lays his claim on us. Again, God is jealous for us. He has laid claim on us through his divine work in us, both by creation and by the bestowing of the Holy Spirit to those who are saved. As Paul points out again in Romans chapter 8, if the spirit of him, verse, verse 10, if Christ is in you, through the body, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is the kicker right here, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So now read James chapter 4, verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, that he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Makes sense. And even though there's no specific scripture to point to that says exactly as this is worded, as, as it's worded here, <coughs> I believe James is referring to the biblical theme of God's jealousy for us. There's many scriptures that talk about that. So the theme of God's jealousy for his people is abundant in the Old Testament. Again, <clears throat> let me just give you a couple. In Exodus 
chapter 20. You'll find out. Uh, Nah, let's skip that one. Go to Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14. You shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is what? Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice their gods and someone might invite you to eat of that sacrifice. See, it's just playing with the world, the allegiances again. Zechariah chapter eight. Zechariah chapter eight. In verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. See, God doesn't give up on his people. Friends, the Holy Spirit longs, longs for our divided, undivided loyalty and allegiance to him. His jealousy is for our faithfulness. Like a husband desires the wife of his youth, so God longs for our fidelity. Amen? We are his bride. He desires a faithful bride. And when we fail... Even then, he stands at the ready to forgive through our humble surrender. And the gravity of this grace means that we must humble our pride and seek his mercy. And when we do, we receive, James says in verse 6, a greater grace. A greater grace than we could ever imagine. Grace Upon grace, but he gives a greater grace. It says, therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This verse has been attested as being one of the most comforting verses in scripture, but he gives a greater grace. Greater than what? Greater than our own stubbornness greater than our own stubborn wills, greater than our selfish ambition, greater than our splintered relationships, greater than our slanderous talk and our envy and our pride. It's grace greater than the depravity of our pleasures, the poverty of our prayers, and the deplorability of our allegiances. Grace greater than our sin. You see, God's desires with all, he, he, he desires with all of his heart for sinners to come home to him. That's what he longs for. The gravity of God's grace pulls us almost irresistibly into unhindered humility in our response to him. Brokenness. We talked about that this morning in the announcements. It's what the, men's, uh, the women's retreat is all about. Brokenness. Pride resists that drawing of God. It gets us nowhere but farther and farther away from him. 
You know, the nastiest divorces I have ever seen were the sad result of people refusing, absolutely refusing to humble themselves and admit their failure in the relationship. You know what that is? That's pride. And it's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. The only difference is that he has nothing to admit to us. Nothing. His love never fails. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We're the ones who must surrender our pride. But for some reason, either we don't want to address it, or pride has disguised itself so well that we fail to even recognize his presence. I read something this week that really nailed this to the wall. It reminded me of a, also of, the, of a movie that I saw some, some years ago. Maybe you've seen it. It was a movie made in the late 90s called The Saint. It was based on a television series from a much earlier era, Val Kilmer plays a master of espionage and burglary, and he's a man of many disguises. A Russian commando, a sniveling journalist, a mystic poet, an effeminate booking agent. But he always takes the name of a saint when he takes these disguises on. His disguises are so thorough, so precise, in such detail, that they fool even those who know him intimately or who are on the hunt for him. And in one scene, he sits right down beside the man who has been obsessively tracking him for years. Sits right next to him. He looks him straight in the eye and he asks him a question. And that man that was tracking him has no idea that it's him. That's what pride is like. That's exactly what pride is like. It keeps showing up in disguise, bearing a saint's name, even. Mingling freely in the crowd, unrecognized by even those who are seeking it out to eliminate it. Pride grows in most soils, most climates. There are, very, there are few conditions under which it cannot survive, even thrive, but there is one soil one soil that usually withers pride away. And you know what it is? It's brokenness. Brokenness. Psalm 51, 17. David writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But as one author writes, who wants to be broken? Do you? But there is a gift in brokenness, as Denise said today. It's a well-hidden gift. It's discovered in the depths of this thing called brokenness. It's a treasure strewn among rubble and sewage. Here is the curious thing. Brokenness molds our character closer to the character of God than anything else can. To experience defeat and disappointment and loss, the raw ingredients of brokenness, you know what it does? It moves us closer to being like God than victory and fulfillment ever could. And you would think just the opposite, wouldn't you? 
David had to learn a hard lesson to be able to write the words of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 basically is the aftermath of his forgiveness, his confession of sin and his forgiveness. It's him coming to terms. And that hard lesson that he learned is is quoted right here in James chapter 4. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me leave you with a convicting insight that I learned this week from the pen of a fellow struggler. One of the worst manifestations of pride is self-deceit. Self-deceit is the unwillingness, even the inability to face our own evil because we're really good at lying to ourselves, aren't we? David, the man after God's own heart, duped himself. He refused for a very long time dark stretch to come into the light. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and when the cover-up scheme failed, he had her husband Uriah murdered. David lived with this lie. You know how long? A year. A year he lived with this lie. And at one point in his life, David had been forced by Saul's madness and jealousy to live in desert caves. You know about that, right? In the Old Testament, Enemy territory, David lived there. He dwelt in caves, in border towns. But you know why he did that then? It was because of his integrity. Because he wouldn't lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. But now for a year, David lived in self-imposed exile in a place far from the will of God. He was there because he could not be honest with himself. It was the opposite of integrity. It was a refugee camp outside of the presence of God where he lived. That's pride's land. Men after God's own heart claim no immunity from lying to themselves. Finally, a year later, the the prophet Nathan confronts David and he repents. And we have a record of that prayer of confession and repentance in Psalm 51, also Psalm 32. The entire psalm here is remarkable, but this verse captures it. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost place. That's Psalm 51.6. No clearer summary of holiness has ever been spoken. You want to talk about holiness? This is it. You desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. What does God want? Surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. That's what he wants. I've given the choice between the original piece of artwork, a Rembrandt, a Van Gogh, or a cheap calendar, a poster copy. We would, without hesitation, choose the original, wouldn't we? we take the real thing, wouldn't we? Every day, God offers us the real thing. His holiness. Real holiness. Truth in the inner parts. God's wisdom spoken in the inmost place. Real holiness is being naked and being, not being ashamed. That's real holiness. Real holiness is coming into the light. Real holiness is telling ourselves the truth no matter how. Much it hurts. No matter what, real holiness is calling sin by its real name. And pride always tries to foist off on us a cheap copy. It's the burglar feigning sainthood. 
God offers us the original. God desires to actually make us saints, amen, from the inside out. But there's only one condition, one condition. And James says it, you've got to humble yourself. More on that next time. Let's pray. Father, easy to preach on humbling oneself, harder to do. Well, it's not even easy to preach on. Because it calls us to account that we must do it. And so, Father, work in us through your Holy Spirit. Reveal truth to the innermost parts, because that's what we desire. We want to be holy, even as you are holy. And that means accepting the truth and naming it. So whatever that means for each one of us, Lord God, I pray that we would be willing to allow your hand to do its work in our lives, that we might glorify you. In the name of Christ, I pray.